Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the Indian Religions Podcast here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Antonia Rupal. She is a skilled Sanskritist and also a highly skilled teacher. Uh, she is affiliated with the University of Oxford and LMU Munich, and she also does a great deal of work at Yogic Studies. She's the author of the Cambridge Introduction to Sanskrit, and any minute now, um, uh, her 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 subsequent publication, her reader in Sanskrit will be released. All of those links will be in the podcast. Antonio, welcome back to the podcast. Hello, Raj. Thank you for having me back. Yeah, we we this is how we engage. I think all of our conversations have been recorded for posterity at this point. <laughs> I think so too. Yes. <laughs> So I met Antonia a couple of years ago in that I came across her textbook and it was abundantly clear to me, um, people is kind of what I do, it was abundantly clear to me that whoever wrote this book knows how to teach. <laughs> so I ended up contacting her. We talk about her original book and it kind of felt like we were long lost karmic something or other. And now fast forward a couple of years, I have an online school. And there is this contingent of my students who are also Antonia students. And to the point where I now uh, uh, have to be mindful of when I schedule the tutorial because I don't want them to miss out on Antonia's classes. So clearly, <laughs> <laughs> mysterious are the ways of online education, that's for sure. Um, tell us about, before we talk, before we wax poetically about the future of online education, let's dive into this reader of yours. Mm-hmm. Tell us about this project. Uh, how did it come about? Uh, what niche is it filling? Um, maybe even talk about the structure of it. Yeah, sure. Um, so like like my, my introductory textbook, the reader is basically um, a product of what I need or what I ideally need, ideally want for my own Sanskrit teaching. Um, so uh, that's how the that's how the textbook came about. I just found that the books that I had available um, weren't ideal for the cohorts of students that I was teaching back at Cornell. Um, and uh, similarly now, I felt that whenever I had um, intermediate students, the kinds of resources that you would need to... Um, start reading Sanskrit with a reasonable amount of fluency um, just really weren't out there. Because, you know, once you've once you've covered sort of all of um, regular Sanskrit grammar, once you've got a little bit of a basic vocab, so it, once you've done an introductory Sanskrit course, um, you're still at a point where if you want to read actual Sanskrit texts, which are all highly literary and polished and so on, um, you need to look up huge numbers of things. So there's forms that you won't recognize, there's many words that you won't know. And even if you do look them up in a dictionary, you know, any word in Sanskrit can mean loads of things. Um, And so if you have to look up that much, it just is not a lot of fun. You know, you're not reading, you're just sort of slogging your way through a text. And so what I did was basically, um, 
I um, uh, selected a number of, of texts from um, a variety of, of, of Sanskrit genres um, and then uh, basically created two kinds of notes, grammar notes and vocab notes. And um, uh, the book is laid out in such a way that you've got the text at the top and then at the bottom, you've got all the relevant vocab notes and all the relevant grammar notes. So you will still be looking up a lot, but looking up simply means looking to the bottom of the page and looking back up. And so I've been using, um, uh, not, not the reader, which isn't out yet, but I've been using texts in this format with students um, in, in a variety of, of settings in a variety of countries. And I have the impression that this is the way to go, that they find this useful and that it's a much more enjoyable way of um, improving your Sanskrit fluency than just, you know, sort of fighting your way through, um, through a text with, um, without, without such help. Well, it's it's kind of perfect to to do it that way, isn't it? Where you're you're responding to a need that you know exists. Mm. You know, like writing the book you wish you had, whether it's this reader or the, the original textbook. Um, and really, uh, just through the grapevine, the, the feedback I get from students at the school who happen to be students of yours at Yogi Studies is that their their Sanskrit's obviously laborious. <laughs> yes. It's obviously, <laughs> yeah. it's obviously immense and intense, but they all seem to really enjoy and resonate with the methods. I'm not surprised, but it's nice <laughs> to have some actual data to corroborate your intuition every once in a while. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And especially because so much teaching is online these days, um, you know, not just not just my yogic studies, but also my Munich teaching. And so it's so nice when you get when you get feedback of this kind, which normally you would get if you have students sitting in front of you who are not looking completely befuddled or completely unhappy. Um, and via Zoom, via those little thumbnails, you just can't tell if some if, if everybody in the room is happy or not. Yeah, it's, it is. It yes, it has its own challenges. Teaching online, there are there are pros and cons for sure. Um, so, so tell us a bit about which texts uh, you draw from for hmm. the reader. Um, basically, I, I two things were were important for me. I wanted the texts to be in Sanskrit that is reasonably straightforward, um, and I wanted the texts to be just interesting um, in their own right. Um, and so uh, sometimes these are uh, excerpts from larger texts. Um, sometimes they are um, self-contained stories, for example, from the from the Hitapadesha. Um, uh, but you know, whatever I did, I wanted these to be things that if you if you if you look at them, if you read them, and you go from the beginning to the end, you feel that you've you know there's some closure. And so I have. Um, Stories from the Hitopadesha, then, uh, which is basically a collection of of, of fables. Um, and when we say fables, we sort of think, oh, you know, this is this is for children. This is this is sort of simple. This is overly simplified, or something like that. And um, uh, the Hitopadesha claims to be aimed at children, but I mean, some of those stories are really quite, quite, quite psychologically intricate. So they may be accessible for children, but they're definitely also very interesting for for adults. Um, and one story I actually put in there because um, that exact thing happened to me um, when I was in when I was in Delhi at one point. 
Um, so, you know, some of these stories also have personal links for me. So there's the Hitabadesha, then the Vikramacharita, which is also um, a sort of narrative tale, which um, has uh, an overarching framework. And then within that framework, you have lots of uh, shorter stories. And I picked a couple of those. Um, again, because they're re reasonably easy to read and also they're, they're, just, they're just fun in themselves. Um, then I, the next chapter is excerpts from the Ramayana, and I basically try to, um, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's an absolute embarrassment of riches. The, the Ramayana is just such a wonderful story, and there's just so much that you could have gone for. And I really, really had to, had to cut down which stories I then did include in the end. Um, and I just wanted to make sure that I had a little bit of everything. So there's some, there's some narrative adventure passages, there's philosophical passages, there's, um, you know, some of the really beautiful descriptions of nature that we get. So, you know, descriptions of the, the rainy season. Um, and um, uh, I try to pick passages um, where basically um, you don't have the um, in, in Western terminology, the, the, the dead white male uh, being the protagonist, but uh, pick, uh, but passages where you can see, you know, just how um, intelligent and wonderful and, you know, fleshed out characters the, the women are, um, or just basically, uh, or also, you know, the monkeys, of course, are, are, are great, great actors in those texts. Um, and I sort of try to... Um, listen to voices that maybe you wouldn't get in your standard, um, you know, one hour retelling of this story. Then I've got two chapters on, um, again, um, texts that you could call narrative. Um, and these are basically both retellings of um, the mystical Bratkata. Bratkata simply means the long story. So it doesn't really sell itself very well, um, but it's a story that um, we don't actually have, um, and probably it never existed. Probably it was always meant to be something something mythical. But we've got various retellings of this story in a variety of languages, and there's uh, two versions that we have, at least partly in Sanskrit, the Katasaratsagara, or Ocean of Rivers of Stories, um, and the Brahatkata Shloka Sangraha, um, or literally the verse summary of the Brahatkata, another very does-what-it-says-on-the-tin title for this work. And both of these have an overarching storyline within which we have lots of little stories, um, some thoroughly philosophical, for example, a discussion about basically what's better, Buddhism or Hinduism, um, to very, very simple stories of girls being turned into mice and the other way around. And so just from very meaningful to just beautifully entertaining. So that's two chapters. And then the last chapter is um, Subhashitas, um, which is basically short, either short poems or short excerpts from longer texts um, that are basically uh, proverbs, wise sayings, just sort of little, little nuggets that you can um, access fairly easily because they're just, you know, two lines long or sometimes they're four lines long. So whenever you would like to read a little bit of Sanskrit, but you don't have a lot of time, you just read a Subhashita. Well, that's what they were made for, right? Not the wisdom, the grammar, right? <laughs> they, they <were> de de <laughs> the Subhashitas were designed for bite-sized grammatical exercises, for sure. Um, <laughs> grammatical, but also making them interest, making the grammar interesting by having them interesting um, content-wise. 
Yes, one would hope so. Um, there's some lovely, lovely subhashitas. Mm. So, so there is an array of interesting and accessible uh, vignettes. Um, perhaps it's my bias, but I, I quite love that you rely on narrative. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right, that was that seems evident throughout that these are these narrative uh, vignettes. Um, so if one were to perhaps be studying Sanskrit um, and one were to enter an intermediate level, would you say that's the point at which one would make use of this reader? Mm, yes. Um, so basically, you know, Sanskrit is taught differently in different environments, in different countries, different academic systems. And so um, it completely depends on. Um, the teacher, if you're studying with a teacher, or um, uh, the student, you know, because there's lots of people who, who teach themselves these days, um, you can use it depending on what uh, introductory textbook you use. If that doesn't have a lot of original Sanskrit, you can absolutely use the reader in your first year um, in your introductory Sanskrit classes um, and um, uh, just use that to supplement whatever other exercises you've got. Or alternatively, you can turn to the reader after you're done with your introductory studies. So, for example, if you were to use my book, I try to make sure to introduce as lot, uh, sorry, as as much um, original Sanskrit in it as possible, um, as you know, as early on as possible. So there's plenty of readings in that book, and so if you learn with my book, probably you're going to go on to the reader once you're done with the book. But there's other books that are much more um, sort of focused on, on just the grammar, on just the essentials to get you through those as quickly as possible. Um, and if you're working with, with a book like that, then maybe you'd like to just take a few stories from the reader um, to, um, you know, just, just um, mix things up a little. Yes, in addition to the, the stories, you offer uh, translations um, mm. and the full vocabulary in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, well, what I, uh, I've got, I've got the book. The main part is the, is the, is the readings. Then I've got an introduction, which is basically a mini summary of um, language points, of syntax points, of grammar points that I felt I was missing when I was starting, when I was just setting out reading Sanskrit literature. So these are things that, that you find fairly commonly in Sanskrit, but that would not necessarily have been covered in an introductory course. So that's just sort of to get you going. Um, I say a little bit about how to build up your vocabulary, so about word formation, you know, prefixes, suffixes, compounding. Um, so that's the introduction. And then the, the um, appendices are a complete um, set of uh, these texts in transliteration. So the, the book itself is in Nagari, um, and it's, um, it's a lovely font that I found. It's called um, uh, Tiro Deva Nagari. It's the font that used to be used for the, for the Murti Library. Um, and now Google has supported it, and so now the font is either has just come out for, for a sort of um, you know, open, open use license or is about to come out. Um, so I'm using this really nice font in the book, but I know that for some people, reading Nagari fluently is still not something they're comfortable with. And so I've got the transliterated texts in the back complete, um, and I've got translations in the back also complete, um, just so that people can check their progress. And um, also what I'm actually working on right now um, is I'm making complete vocab lists for each story. 
because what I've got um, at the bottom of the page is basically the vocab where I'm fairly sure you're not going to know it because it's a little rarer. But um, I don't know, you know, what preparation people come to the book with. And so um, for each uh, story, I'm just making a list of all the vocab, you know, starting from cha and bharati and, you know, all the basics to, to all the words that are really, really quite rare. Um, and that's going to be made available as a PDF on the publisher's website. And so basically you can just print that out and you can have it next to you together with the book. And then you've got theoretically all the grammar that you need and all the vocab that you need on just, you know, right on your table in front of you. And you can read without having to, you know, leaf back and forth in various other research um, uh, grammars or reference works or websites and so on. What a concept. User-friendly Sanskrit study. I mean, this is... <laughs> This is a this is this is this is innovation at its finest. <laughs> and and I think now is the time for it because you know for the longest time at least sort of in in English speaking circles the people who'd learn Sanskrit would be the ones who were um, enrolled at universities and the universities that offered Sanskrit were usually sort of the more more academically minded elite ones. And I remember um, I was talking to a student um, at Oxford um, who you know where basically they do Sanskrit in two terms so like in you know about six months and uh, she was then saying well you know this is oxford so obviously what they asked me to learn i learn you know what would they want me to study i study and i memorize um and i just thought that not all people can can do that and i also feel that no one should have to do it <laughs> indeed indeed there's um obviously there are a number of uh, mindsets and biases regarding Sanskrit and the learning of Sanskrit. Uh, yes. But this, but this is really, uh, you know, I've, I've commented on this before, and I think that's why I sort of, I, 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 I you know, I, I sensed it a mile away. This really is, all jokes aside, a, a major innovation in, in logical studies. Like that's abundantly clear from the outside. For me, I may be also in a similar niche and similarly a bit head, ahead of a curve that the Academy will be following for too long but this strikes me the work that you're doing is not just the, the a, a reader and it's not just you know an intro sanskrit textbook and a reader it's reshaping the pedagogy of sanskrit study in particular in the online milieu i mean that's how it looks to me that's is this making I'm sense to you that's that's at least what my what my my, my aim what my goal is um, because um, as I said you know we've we've long gone beyond the traditional models of um, uh, Sanskrit just being taught at universities there's so many people who are interested in it who who are not full time students you know who are not nineteen twenty or twenty one or something like that um, and so um, to be able to teach Sanskrit to um, students like that. And especially in the sort of online um, uh, online milieu enclaves. is uh, yeah. Well, but you know these are worldwide enclaves. That's the great thing. I was just yeah, I was just offering a global village enclaves. Yeah, <laughs> but yes, they're worldwide. And, and, and it's this very weird thing because you know you've got lots of people who you know probably wherever they are are not surrounded by other Sanskrit enthusiasts. Um, but uh, my my what I love so much about my classes is that um, you know they just. Um, 
um, they would really benefit from the earth being flat because you always have this problem that if you teach, it will be for, for someone, it will be in the middle of the night because, you know, they will be coming from, from, from Asia, from Australia. They will be coming from Hawaii, from the Americas, from Europe. Somewhere is it is going to be night. So someone will not be able to participate. And I would never have foreseen that that could be that could be an issue that, um, you know, um, uh, the fact that uh, Singapore and, and uh, uh, Munich, where I am, are several hours apart, but not, not, not enough hours apart, that that would ever be something that I'm taking into account in timing my teaching. Yeah, it's, it's really phenomenal to, to, to witness and partake in the change happening. Uh, I'm sa- I've said this to Seth Powell a couple times. Um, maybe it's, it's, it's um, <laughs> maybe he's starting to agree, but what he's doing is the future of a subset of the academy. And what you're doing is the future of Sanskrit studies at the academy and beyond. You know, one of the things I've been very excited about for a long time is uh, continuing studies education. Yes. And I got a job at the University of Toronto, I think in 2010, uh, till about 2017, 2018. Um, and this notion of people who show up and want to learn, don't care, you know, they're not interested in a degree. Uh, most of them are beyond pleasing mommy and daddy. That's <laughs> 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 majority of them. That ship has sailed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and they want to learn. They, they want to learn. They're coming to yogic studies. They're coming to the school of Indian wisdom. They want to learn and all things Indic are rooted in some way, shape, or form in Sanskrit. Mm. You know, it's so it seems. Um, and at least um, the voices that have been preserved have been preserved in Sanskrit for the most part. Uh, ancient narratives. There, there are, of course, you know, fairly old or very old texts in, in Dravidian languages, you know, from the South. Um, but even those um, uh, texts would have some Sanskrit influence because Sanskrit just was the sort of language used across the subcontinent uh, for such a long time. Yes. And so, I mean, there's there's folks at the school who uh, they might be there for spiritual reasons or philosophical reasons, or uh, they want to learn history and they need to learn Sanskrit. They want to learn Sanskrit. They, most of them don't have uh, the intention of mastering Sanskrit or being fluent in Sanskrit, but even one, two, three years of Sanskrit, so enriches their understanding of oh, yeah. of texts of of concepts of of a, of a mindset that's so different from the modern Western mindset. So it's it's really cool to see. Um, in addition to the reader, there's a number of tools. So there, there are a number of uh, pedagogical um, aids that you have been involved in. Mm. Um, one of them is a series of flashcards, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, um, I uh, have been using both Brainscape and to some extent Quizlet, which are two flashcard programs um, for, for quite a while, um, because I'm, I'm the kind of person who, if I need to memorize something and I do it from a page, I can just never do it. I will remember exactly, you know, where a word stands, you know, it's on a right hand page um, somewhere down the middle. 
what does it mean? That I won't remember. And so um, I have always needed flashcards for my own learning. And I still have lots and lots of Latin and Greek vocab flashcards um, uh, at, at, uh, at my parents' home somewhere. Um, and so at some point, I realized that these cards exist um, in, in digital format. And so I can make them for my students. They can still make them for themselves. But if they don't want to do that, I can make them for them. And so I had flashcards for basically all the memorizable materials. So um, noun forms, verb forms, sandhi, vocab for my textbook. And then I um, continued with that for the reader, because basically when you're at the intermediate stage, there's two things that you need to do. One is read a lot, and the other is um, work on your vocab. And so I went to... Um, I think this is part of the uh, SanskritDictionary.com website. They have a um, um, word frequency um, uh, function on their website. And you can basically say, um, give me the 1,000 most frequent words in the following genres or in the following centuries or in all of Sanskrit literature. And I then just um, selected the, the genres that an intermediate student is most likely to come across and that are presented that are included in my reader, made a list of around 1,000 words and then ordered them a little bit and uh, put them into around, I think, 20 flashcard sets. So it's around 40 to 50 words per set. And um, uh, the the full list for that learning vocab is um, also included in the, in the back of my reader. Forgot to mention that earlier. And um, so basically you can then in, in small chunks Work on your work on your vocabulary knowledge, and uh, the reason why I did this with Brainscape is uh, basically there's well there's two reasons. Um, one is that um, I can make these available for free, so students don't need to pay a cent or a penny depending on where you are, um, and. Um, also, they have this great system where basically you, you're presented with a card, um, which would be a Sanskrit word. You flip over the card, which then gives you the English translation of the word. And then you can say on a scale of one through five, how well did you know this word? And if you say you knew it, you knew it really well, then you're not going to be given that card again for a fair while. Uh, whereas if you say, oh, I've really completely forgotten about that, didn't know that one at all, um, then you will get this card again much, much, much more uh, quickly. And so it's an intelligence system that helps you um, uh, work through new material, new knowledge, without you having to do very much. You basically just sort of just, just flip through the cards. Um, and I found it to be quite productive. And they've got apps, you know, for um, both Quizlet and Brainscape have got apps. So you can do it on your phone. You can do it on your computer, wherever you like. I feel like I want to enroll in, in, in intro or intermediate Sanskrit just to learn about all of these pedagogical tools. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, um, what you should do is come to the, the, the DOT, which is the um, Deutsche Orientalistentag, which is the big um, uh, sort of Asianist uh, conference in Germany, where I'm actually organizing a panel together with a friend of mine on Sanskrit pedagogy. Sorry, not silly, on language pedagogy. So because, you know, Sanskrit and lots of other languages that you need in order to access access. Um, the cultures that you're trying to study. And um, if that all goes through, then basically the talk that I want to give is going to be about 
let's identify the elements of um, uh, you know regular classes um, that we need for good, productive, um, enjoyable learning. Let's look at how we can best um, reproduce these for an online environment. Let's look at what products are available, you know, what services are available, what things, what services are still needed, you know, a hint to the developer community, um, you know, where there's still future markets. Um, and then, you know, give people basically an, an overview of if you would like to offer your language, especially, you know, if it's a smaller language, if you would like to offer that online, basically, here's one tried and tested recipe of how you can do that, you know, which ingredients do you need to bake a tasty online teaching cake? And now we just have to hope that that panel, you know, it will be accepted. <laughs> well, whether the panel is accepted or not, uh, through this podcast, that, that concept's out there, you'll publish a paper uh, at a journal or through a blog. Or, yes. It's it's clear, like, so, so pedagogy is kind of where I live. I did a piece for the AAR web magazine, I think in 2018 about storytelling and the power of storytelling for Hindu studies mm. pedagogy. And then uh, for some strange reason, I found myself teaching online in about 2017. And so online pedagogy, whether at the OCHS or at school, or, you know, I do courses every now and then for yogic studies or embodied philosophy, just how do you teach online? How do you teach very intimate transformative subjects online? Yeah. And, um, that's basically your niche with Sanskrit. How do you teach language effectively online? Yes. Um, yeah. And so that's that would be a, a brilliant thing to attend. I still think it'd be fun to use those flashcards, whether I know the words or not. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see what I can do about that. Um, in addition to the flashcards that are an accompaniment, a side dish, uh, an <laughs> item on the tally of your of your of your your reader, your delicious reader. Um, you also have, uh, you've, you've produced some interesting posters, some Sanskrit posters. Why don't you tell us about those? Yes. Well, once again, you know, this is going to um, sound like a, like a broken record. But once again, these were things where I thought I would really like to have something like this available. And so I created it. Um, so basically, these posters are, um, again, um, reference works, reference posters. There's one that just is for very beginning students, so that gives you an overview of the Divanagari and of, um, uh, you know, difficult conjunct consonants and so on. Um, uh, but then the main posters are an overview of all nominal and pronominal declensions in Sanskrit, um, an overview of all internal, so all external and all the relevant or frequent internal sandhi, so, you know, all the sound changes that are Occur, that occur when words or parts of words meet and that Sanskrit uh, reflects in writing, um, and which is something that makes reading Sanskrit fairly difficult because one in the same word can have a variety of forms depending on what word follows. Um, and so there's the, there's, this, there's the Sanskrit, sorry, the Sandhi poster, and then I've got an overview of the Sanskrit verb poster. So thematic verbs, athematic verbs, perfects, how do you form a future, what are aorists, um, and so on and so on. And um, these these posters, basically, what I did is I, I had them I had them printed, and I put them up above my desk. And it I just found that it helped me so much that if I wasn't quite sure, you know, what on earth is this form, I could just look up and find the answer. Um, I didn't have to, you know, leaf through any books or anything like that. And so, um, yeah, once again, you know, I'm definitely a, a beneficiary of these now. <laughs> 
where were you in 2005? You know, like I, I, when I started studying Sanskrit, I mean, I wish, <laughs> I'm, I'm so excited about what you're doing. And I'm like, damn, it would have been nice to have these when I was studying Sanskrit. It's great. Um, uh, so there's the there's the reader that you have uh, produced. It's uh, published by Brill. It'll mm-hmm. be out any minute now. In, in uh, for those of you in the timeless time in podcast land, it'll be out. Uh, it will it will be out or or or, or came out <laughs> uh, November <laughs> November uh, 2021. Um, and along with the reader, uh, there are these. Uh, all of this will be posted in the podcast notes. There are flashcards to support your learning. Uh, there's a poster where uh, at a glance you can take a look at the various declensions to get a sense of, you know, what form it is that's tripping you up. Um, and, and I should say the posters, unfortunately, aren't free because, um, you know, the, the flashcards, they are electronic products. I can just make those available to anyone. Um, but the, the posters, um, you know, I couldn't make, give those out to people for free because I'm paying for them. Um, and I found that the simplest way of, of making them available to people was with the help of Seth Powell of Yogic Studies fame. Um, I then put them on the in the Yogic Studies shop. And so you can you can get them from there. And I think they've already proven quite, quite popular. Well worth it. For the cost of lunch, you can get a poster that'll change your Sanskrit trajectory. I'm sure. I'm sure people will be okay with that. Um, uh, no, although I'll put all of those links for the in the podcast notes for the flashcards, oh, for the posters, uh, for the reader, and also for the uh, introduction textbook that you've written, which we've talked about on the podcast before. We had w- one podcast. Uh, in I believe 2019, when the when the when the podcast was fairly young, I guess, or at least my involvement therein was fairly new, um, and it was about the reader. And then we had a conversation in 2020, I think at the dawn of 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 of, of pandemonium of uh, <laughs> after when the rain started falling and got worse and worse, and we started to think about building an ark, you know, in in, yes. in early 2020, and we. Really, what I wanted to do was put your yogic studies Sanskrit um, courses on people's radars, um, because that's how folks outside of a degree program can obviously study with you mm, through yes. your YouTube course through through yogic studies. And now that we're having this sort of third installment, about a year and a half later of our of our timeless conversation recorded for posterity. Um, uh, Let's kind of merge those two together and think more uh, like what's going on. I mean, we're doing something. I don't feel lost anymore. There's other people in the clearing with a machete. You know, something's happening, obviously. <laughs> Clearly something is happening. I'd love your take. Um, what's going on with this whole online education thing? Or what are you doing? Like, what is what's what's going on here, Antonio? Yeah, yeah. Um, my take, um, given that, you know, I have I have three jobs. And all three jobs are online. Yeah. So I've been thinking about, you know, how, how did we get here? Um, a fair bit. And my take as well, you know, we are pop, we are we are profiting from things that overall are absolutely horrible. Which first of all is this this lovely pandemic that we are surrounded by, still surrounded by. Um, and so uh, uh, now the now people who before would not have tried out online teaching um, were forced to try it out 
and then realized, oh, hang on, this can actually be really good. You know, you can do it horribly, but you can do in-person teaching horribly, but you can actually do um, uh, online teaching um, via a computer. You can do that really well. And um, so uh, that's on the teacher side. And on the student side, you all of a sudden had students who realized that um, um, there were all these offerings out there and they, they tried them, you know, maybe just sort of dipped their toe in with one and then saw that, well, actually, you know, these, these, these are fun. And because um, online communication is so easily possible and has become so very cheap, um, you can have a study group um, and can have study buddies that are geographically close to you. Or maybe not, you know, maybe they're in different time zones, but you just happen to all be awake at the same time. So you can have not just teaching and instruction, but you can have actual community online. And and the other thing that is almost equally terrible is I think the developments in informal academia, because um, across, well, I don't know whether it's across the world, but in the countries where I have taught where I've been involved in university systems, um, it is more and more about turning universities into businesses. And so if a, if a subject uh, gives you a straight path to a um, job, to a, to a profession um, that lets you make lots of money, um, then your subject is safe. But if it's a subject that is there to basically um, show you um, you know, about the beauty of life, about the beauty of human existence, about um, intercultural understanding, human. what it means to be human. Yes, exactly. So these aspects of us that that employers cannot make use of, but that actually, I would say, are fairly crucial for all of us. Um, you know, these subjects are just cut left, right and center. And um, it's the US does this better than, than Germany does. But in Germany, I've encountered so many people who basically say, you know, you should study subject X if you want to become an academic in subject X and who then say, oh, well, you know, we had this student, but they only stayed with us for two semesters and then they did something else. And that is seen as a bad thing. And I feel that we, A, um, you know, if I've got a student who does two semesters of Sanskrit and then they do, a, you know, go into journalism or something, perfect. You know, I've got something, someone who knows about Sanskrit who might actually be able to then write about it in a way that appeals to a large part of the, of the public. Um, and when we have um, university departments being closed, which is which is happening in Germany, so Sanskrit is getting smaller and smaller, among other subjects, then very often, if you know all our students are actually within our subject, so they're within the halls of academia, then we do not have advocates in the public who would say, oh, I have wonderful memories of doing my undergrad, you know, studying Sanskrit, but now I do this completely unrelated thing. Maybe I'm in politics, maybe I'm in publishing, maybe I'm in I don't know what. Um, let me speak up for these people whose existence is now threatened. No, we've only got Sanskritists who will speak up for us. And while there are a fair number of people who then do speak up, I think um, the situation would be a lot better if... Um, the people, you know, if the public um, was uh, aware of what not just Sanskrit, basically all the humanities, all the all the art subjects, uh, what treasures they've got to offer. It's um, yeah, it's taken me a couple of years to really be to 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 become fully conscious of something that I suspected and kind of caught whiffs of here and there, but there is a, a clearly a, a a dire issue with mm. humanities education. And yet it is humanities education, which will save our planet and our species in so many ways. 
it's, in it's, combination with technical yes, STEM subjects. Of, yeah, of course, not instead of, but in addition to. Yeah, and it's the humanities education that prepares the person to engage in the technology in a meaningful way, to yes. engage, to make. Okay, so you're a scientist. At some point, there'll be ethical decisions to make, particularly if you're a biologist. Yeah. For example, and so it's that it's that person formation. It's being a human first, learning what it means to be human, learning about the rise and fall of empires, learning about arts and culture across the globe, learning about comparative mythology, learning about ancient Greek basket weaving, whatever works. <laughs> learning about it's, what to do when you're unhappily in love. You know, if you've never read any literature, um, then you might feel, and I think many, many teenagers do feel that, that they're completely alone with this feeling and that they're the first ever to encounter this. Um, or what it, what happens, um, you know, when you've lost your job or when you've got, um, you know, some, some, some person that you have to deal with, you know, some colleague you've got to deal with, but they're really, really difficult. If you don't have access to culture, then you may feel that, you know, a, that you're alone, and B, that you need to, you know, probably invent the wheel, reinvent the wheel. And um, this is one of the wonderful things about basically all arts and humanities subjects. You get to know these cultures that are far, far away in space and time, and in so many other um, uh, ways, in so many other dimensions, but they're human. And you just link, you connect to them, you feel kinship. Yes, you can. the, the sentience uh, from these cultural artifacts or narrative is palpable. It's palpable yes. to anybody with, you know, the, who can perceive it. Um, so, so there's obviously an issue happening at the academy. I mean, I know that from personal experience. I know that uh, I'm in this really bizarre but delightful position of being a self-employed, productive scholar. Yeah, well connected, unheard of. Like I, I, I'm, I still don't understand. I feel like it's a walking contradiction, frankly. <laughs> But at the same time, I mean, imagine all the folks who might have been hardworking, brilliant scholars who came out with a PhD in religious studies who've gone who knows where because the jobs weren't available. And, you know, this this path of somehow entrepreneuring or supporting yourself or, 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 or teaching online to the public, you know, it wasn't quite as present as, as it is now. And so... <laughs> You know, I really and truly feel that online education has, I felt this even before the pandemic, that it has a, a huge role to play in the future of the humanities at the academy and beyond. And now since the pandemic, without question. Yeah. And, 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 and this, what, what has just become blatantly clear is that, you know, the interest for all of these things um, has not has not weakened. I would say it has strengthened. Yeah, there are so many people who are interested in learning um, the things, learning about the things that 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 we can offer, um, and it's just that you know they wouldn't do those at university because um, sometimes it's parental pressure. You know, become a lawyer, not a poet. Um, that's um, you know as old as time. Um, and um, uh, then often you also have this thing that at um, in many universities, the people who are um, uh, hired often are the best researchers. And that makes complete sense because, you know, universities are sort of the safe spaces for research that you do for the sake, not of money, but for the sake of, of, of learning and knowing and understanding. But those are not necessarily the best teachers. And so sometimes um, uh, students will be turned off from these, these things and then, you know, take the safe option of economics or something like that instead, um, because uh, the, their, their teachers aren't really prepared for having to um, engage, having to uh, awaken someone's interest in the first place 
Um, basically, they are, they are great if you already know that this is exactly what you want to do, but it may not be great if you're sort of just, as I say, dip, are dipping your toe in and are not quite sure, you know, what all of this study of, I don't know, the Near East or India or, or uh, East Asia or whatever other cultures you're, you're interested in, uh, what that is all about. And um, many, you know, there's, there's brilliant teachers who are regularly employed as professors at, you know, respected universities. But I have the impression from seeing, you know, the, the kinds of teaching offerings that exist in, um, in, ultac, in alternative academia. I don't know whether that's a term yet, so I'm going to just use it. It is until now. It is. it is now. Excellent. Good. So um, uh, in, in Alt-Ac, you very often then have people whose main interest actually is the teaching. And that, of course, is a huge strength for people who do this, um, you know, who take these courses to to enrich their lives because they're just interested in them, not because they want to dedicate their lives to topic X, but because their lives will just be more 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 lively um, with these with this kind of knowledge or understanding in them. Well said. Um, you have another uh, a side dish uh, on your on your tally of offerings that's you know rather attractive. <laughs> Um, how rather meta we're on a, we're on an Indian religions podcast about to talk about another one. <laughs> but yeah, it's have. another podcast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you are now, um, you're now a podcast host. You're not just a podcast guest anymore. You're a podcast I am, host. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what podcast do you host? What's it all about? So it's called the Sanskrit studies podcast. And I called it that because basically, um, so have to take a step back there. Um, I had for a long time had this idea of um, creating a bit of an overview of all the many things that you can do with Sanskrit. Um, you know, the, you've got people who are interested in it from a linguistic point of view, for literature, for philosophy, for, for faith or spiritual reasons, um, because they're interested in history, because they're students of anthropology or sociology, and so on and so on and so on. And so it's such a huge field that, um, A, even if you're in the field, you may not necessarily know what your you know other colleagues are doing. So, for example, I know far too little about, say, you know, medieval Indian history or something like that. Um, so I would just like to know more about what does one do if one studies X aspect of Sanskrit. And also I thought um, uh, very often we are not very good at, at um, um, you know, marketing, to use this horrible word, ourselves. And so um, there's many people who, uh, many students who um, don't know what that we exist and what we offer and who might be interested possibly in studying Sanskrit, Indology, South Asian studies, if they had only known that it existed and what it was all about. And so I wanted to combine basically these two aspects, you know, help us get to know our colleagues and help others, potentially students or anybody else who's interested, get to know the field a little better. And originally my idea was that I wanted to um, ask people um, to basically write a sort of mini chapter on why would they do, what aspect of Sanskrit they are working on is the bee's knees. You know, why that is great, why that's interesting, why you, dear reader, might also want to do that. And um, then I thought, well, but, you know, we all have so many things that we get have to write. So probably it would take a very long time to get a book like this going and, you know, to get all the chapters and everything. And then I thought, well, maybe um, it would be good to um, host a series of, of talks um, where we then invite 
people um, uh, from different parts of Sanskrit studies to just talk about what they do, maybe record this, maybe put it on YouTube, but basically, you know, invite students, invite people who are interested to these talks. And I was basically told, well, no, that's not academic enough. Um, but then I mentioned this idea to um, Seth Powell, um, who not only runs Yogic Studies, but also Yogic oh, Studies love podcast. I love, I love that turn in the story. And, Sorry, he, and, and his reaction was like, oh, that's fantastic. I think that's a great idea. You know, this would have a great audience. And here's the technical setup that you need. And, you know, he gave me so much support and so much help with this. Um, and um, basically, you know, this is how the Sanskrit Studies podcast was born, which is at this point as much Seth's making and Seth's brainchild as it is mine. Um, and um, uh, so uh, this is how this became, it went from being a book to being talks to being a podcast where I'm doing exactly what I'd originally wanted to do, but um, in a way that um, I couldn't originally have envisaged because um, we've got, you know, this two episodes out so far you know we've had almost 2000 downloads so you know I'm not, so surprised. I'm, I'm not surprised that you have more downloads a scholar has more downloads speaking about what what how they use sanskrit on their podcast than they would begin to have sales for a book they've produced <laughs> for example yeah, it, it's it's incredible. I mean, I love so many aspects of that story. I can't tell you where to begin. My synapses are firing. First of all, it's something <laughs> that I would it's something that I would listen to. And frankly, I'm in the really bizarre position of spending creating a bunch of online content, mm -hmm. but not consuming very much because between between the research and the coaching and the and the and the content creation and the teaching, I'm at a screen all day. So in my downtime, it's sort of a no screen zone for yeah. the most part. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, barring Netflix, of course. Come now, we have to make an exception <laughs> for Netflix. Um, I have said too much. Uh, anyhow, it's something I'd listen to for obvious reasons. It's 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 interesting to hear from scholars, but one step further than what I do on this podcast, except maybe with conversations with you and a couple others, is you learn about the lives of the people their, exactly. their journeys yes their motivations their drives their opportunities so let me tell you this interesting story where i'm i as a as a phd student i think it was 2015 actually i went to the world sanskrit conference in uh, thailand Bangkok, mm -hmm. and it being the world sanskrit conference essentially met pretty much everyone at the Western Academy <laughs> studies, the Puranas and, and the epics. So I met a, a number of scholars and there was one in particular, a number of them that I clicked with, but I ended up uh, working with one of them. His name was Makamas Taylor. And we ended up a couple years later, co-editing the volume uh, the, of the conference proceedings pertaining mm -hmm. to Puranas. And then after the, the, the UBC, the university of British Columbia world Sanskrit conference in 2018, Again, we co-edited this thing. We just have this synergy. We've met in person, I think, twice. Um, and yet we have this instant work report. It's really interesting. So I say to him, hey, um, you know, it's really long overdue to have a collection of Sanskrit narrative, like Puranas, like like Purana Puranis 2.0. It's been close to 30 years. It's about mm -hmm. time. Um, I want to rope you in because then we'll have at least some academic standing. People know me as an academic. I don't have an institution. And we want to use uh, the ANU Press because it's open access. But yeah. I'll do all of the monkey work, <laughs> the back and forth work, obviously. <laughs> 
he's done you know more than his share of the writing but you know all of the the roping in of people who surprisingly all said yes um so i'm working i'm working with mccomas taylor on this <laughs> project then i decided to have him on this podcast to talk about the vishnu purana mm-hmm. and then about like five days later i'm like Sanskrit studies podcast? McComas Taylor? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, like, I don't care. I was going on my walk. I hit play. All of a sudden, I'm listening to McComas Taylor, who's in my inbox day in and day out. But learning things that I never would have learned, even collaborating with a man. You know, who would know that he took a vow under the full moon to learn Sanskrit? Yes. I mean, this is, this is an origin story that, you know, matches any Marvel superhero. <laughs> how, how Indian of him. <laughs> he vowed under the Purnima to learn Sanskrit, and so he did. Um, and, and so once again, you know, I'm hugely profiting from these things. I put them out for other people to enjoy, but I also enjoy them greatly. You know, I talk to people and I can just sit there and ask them questions. For, for, for a full hour, which normally in sort of under regular circumstances, if you sat next to someone, for example, at dinner or something like that. Um, and, you know, with the, with the podcast, it's the exact same thing as with all my other stuff, uh, my other materials. Um, I put them out there because I hope people will join them, but I just enjoy them myself so hugely. Um, you get a chance to sit together, you know, sit down to, with someone and ask them uh, questions for a full hour. If you were seated next to them, uh, say, at dinner, that might be considered slightly impolite if you just went, and wh- th- then what did you do? Oh, and could you tell me more about this? And then, oh, how did that come to be? Oh, and you know so-and-so as well. And um, so it would just be impolite. Um, but in this in this format, it, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm allowed to, to, to be noisy, to, uh, noisy, nosy, um, and people enjoy the product. And that is just wonderful yeah they're they're coming in uh i've done a couple of podcasts where i've interviewed people five or six or so and so they're they're <laughs> they're, <coming. laughs> they're I, I think i've literally interviewed over 100 scholars at this point they're coming in and interviews okay i'm going to be speaking so you know it can be because i know you're much more vulnerable in an interview setting than you are, say, at dinner or when you tell, make an excuse or, <laughs> or, or whatever, <laughs> dodge the question. You know, folks, um, that safe space, that, that the, 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 the reputation and the safety that they feel, like coming into a situation where they, they, they know they won't be interrogated, they won't mm. be made to look foolish, they won't, this isn't a situation where we're trying to cast doubt to make them look bad in some way. The interview will only make, uh, it'll only support what they're trying to do or what they're trying to present. So it's great. I think it's fantastic. I, I thought it was, it was great to see you hosting and hosting a Sanskrit studies podcast. I mean, how incredibly nerdy and niche, but, but needed. Like, yeah. <laughs> we need- <laughs> And, and isn't it weird that because we're so uh, electronically connected across the globe, you know, even though this is very niche, it's a sizable niche, you know. <laughs> but, but this is exactly right. I mean, this is exactly right. I mean, I'm starting off, you know, with the School of Indian Wisdom, and it's for me, it's never been about coal traffic. Maybe at some point it will be, you know, or Facebook mm. ads or any of that stuff. For me, it's sort of uh, organic. You know, people who might have heard a podcast or a talk, and they're like, you know what? I want to hear more from that guy. I want to hear more about that topic. It's, it's organic and connected, and and it's like, okay, so I'm doing this Navaratri course, 
And I'm like, how on earth do 20 people want to give me cash to hear about the Davy who are uh, <laughs> as passionate about this as I am, uh, whether it's 20 or 200 or 2000, whatever it is, it, that opening up to what's beyond your vicinity, I could easily find in, you know, in some time, a hundred people who are extremely passionate about this or these hmm. topics. That might be a little bit of a challenge, even in a Mecca like Toronto, right? Yes, so it yeah. really becomes the situation where it's so niche, but then there's this thriving following of something so niche because it's open to, to anyone with the internet, really. Yeah. And and so given that you mentioned McCormus, um, so he and I just recently offered a one week intensive course, um, just re reading Sanskrit, um, reading uh, the opening passage of Kalidasa's Megaduta, which is, um, you know, a really, really, it's, it's extremely beautiful, but it's an extremely challenging text. And um, uh, so, you know, we wanted it to be, to, to be uh, available for people in as many time zones as possible. Um, and so, you know, for Australians, it was, I think, 9am or something like that but for Europeans for me it was 1 a.m for uh, you know people in the UK it was midnight for Americans it was a sort of more you know more straightforward easier time but we had all these people who you know night after night morning after morning tuned in um, and wanted to work on their Sanskrit wanted to read this text and I think we had um, about sort of 50 people signed up of which you know more than 30 turned up every single every single class and it was it was just so much fun and um, without the internet, this this wouldn't be possible. And um, uh, that you know that course was completely for free. We did it just really just because we had fun doing it. Um, but that's why um, uh, you know f for profit or sort of non free um, uh, online courses are also flourishing because all of a sudden we who are living in our little niches, our little enclaves all across the world can come and combine our niches into one beautiful big online classroom where you all of a sudden share all these interests with other people. It's just like, you know, it used to be that, you know, if you grew up in a little village and then at some point um, you had the chance to move to a bigger city, all of a sudden you will find all these, this variety of human life and you would find people who are um, not not you know kin uh, to you by blood but by but by interest by spirit and we have this times a thousand thanks to online teaching look listen without the internet how would we exhaust our karmas with people across the globe <laughs> <laughs> it's a major accelerator and facilitator of karmic exhaustion <laughs> it's great it's great. Um, uh, who else have you thus far interviewed on the Sanskrit Studies podcast? So the two episodes that are out already are, um, first of all, Mikko Miss Taylor and then Dagmar Vyastik. And um, I have um, also already interviewed Dominic Vyastik and also Michael Witzel from, from Harvard. Um, and um, just with those four interviews, it was absolutely wonderful to see, you know, the variety of ways. I, you know, I try to make it about Sanskrit, but I also always make it about the person. So how did you come to Sanskrit? How did you first get interested in this? And to see just how many people are now full-time Sanskritists who did not start out doing Sanskrit at university, but this came, you know, through some roundabout fortuitous way, you know, someone said, oh, you know, Sanskrit this or Sanskrit that, and all of a, all of a sudden they found themselves drawn to it. 
um, just how many different different paths there are into it. Um, also, you know, the different different academic journeys of um, um, well, you know, you want to do Sanskrit, but how do you do it? You know, how do you find funding? How do you find an institution? How do you find a certain environment that supports you? And you know how that how that differs over the um, over the different uh, uh, continents and over different times. Um, and actually. Just today, um, I was uh, talking to John Brockington um, from uh, the UK, so uh, mostly of, of University of Edinburgh fame, and he's now uh, back in, in Oxford. Um, and it was just really fascinating listening to him what um, uh, uh, being a student at Oxford was like, um, you know, quite a long time ago, almost 60 years ago. Um, and then um, uh, what it was like moving to the University of Edinburgh, building up a Sanskrit program there that went beyond just the basic language requirements, um, and to see what sorts of things really change over time and what things, um, you know, actually are quite, quite similar. So whenever we say, oh, you know, there's this pressure to increase student numbers, he was mentioning that, well, actually, the reason why he was called upon to create a program that went beyond Sanskrit language was so as to increase student numbers. Um, and, and one of the bits that he told me that I thought was absolutely wonderful was um, that when the Beatles became popular, um, uh, courses not necessarily about Sanskrit language, but about Indian culture, all of a sudden, you know, blew up in popularity. And this is another red thread that runs through the life of Sanskrit. You know, so many people seem to think, well, this is this dead language and this obscure subject. And why on earth would you study Sanskrit or Sanskrit, as many people call it, or Sanskrit? Um, you know, the writing in the sand, um, uh, you know, why on earth would you do that? But there's so many different parts of, of, of everyday life and of, of well, pop culture that then lead people to an interest in um, some part of Indian culture. And for some, it remains a fairly broad and um, you could put a negative, um, negatively superficial interest. But for many that, you know, this one kind of thing that caught their attention then is the beginning of a path that leads them all the way down to taking on several years of Sanskrit classes, studying various, you know, literatures and so on and so on. And just today, actually, I was talking to uh, John Brockington who, um, uh, you know, for most of his life worked at the University of Edinburgh and now is back at, at Oxford. And it was absolutely wonderful hearing from him about what a place like Oxford was like um, almost basically 60 years ago, um, how, how university life was organized back then, how um, when he came to, to Edinburgh, um, his job actually was to, well, to, to build up a Sanskrit program that went beyond uh, language studies in order to increase student numbers. So I always find it fascinating to see what sorts of things change, you know, like availability of funding and so on and availability of jobs. But the fact that even back then there was a push to raise student numbers, um, uh, that's 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 interesting that's helpful to know that allows us to see um you know what strategies did they use back then what strategies can we maybe take over and just adapt a little bit um for uh, the sorts of things that we have to do today and um one of the things that he told me about that i thought was particularly wonderful was um uh, the fact that when the beatles became popular um, all of a sudden, uh, courses uh, that taught you about about India, not necessarily about Sanskrit, but about uh, you know broader Indian culture, um, exploded in size. 
And that is such a, such a typical thing to happen um, because even though we consider Sanskrit to be this, this very, um, well, niche thing, exactly as you and I have been saying, and this thing that um, there's really no point in studying it, why on earth would you want to do it? Um, there still are so many different ways into an interest in India in very broad strokes, uh, South Asia in the various cultures, in the various religions, in the philosophies, in the languages, and so on. And um, it's little things that catch people's interest, such as the Beatles or various other bits, um, various other elements of modern day broad pop culture. And some people then enter the field of Sanskrit and uh, their interest remains fairly broad. And other people, you know, sort of 15 years down the road, find themselves having done lots and lots of language courses, having learned about all the literary traditions and philosophical tra traditions and so on and so on. And I always find it nice when I see that certain things that I maybe consider fairly modern, but only because, you know, my experience of them is modern only. Um, when I then see that those things have already a fair amount of, of history, um, because when certain things continue, when certain things repeat themselves, um, that means we can learn from the past. And that means that um, maybe things that we see nowadays um, are, or that we see now as, as, as negative, you know, we're always forced to increase student numbers. Well, that was actually something that people in the olden days uh, already had to do. And look at the fabulous work um, that they that they still produced, the fabulous research that they did. Um, and these are times that we consider the good old times to some extent. And even then, people were under certain pressures that we are now under. And so for all these reasons, you know, for interest in Sanskrit, interest in individual biographies, in the interest in... Um, not just scholarly, but also human biographies. I'm just having a ball with these interviews. And next week, I am actually going to talk to Mary Brockington. It just so worked out that I was talking to um, John Brockington first. Fantastic. Um, we'll definitely include the link for the podcast. Um, Thank you. So was there anything else you wanted to touch on today? Um, Sanskrit is fantastic. Everybody should learn Sanskrit. Um, but beyond that, <laughs> no. <laughs> it was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you for returning to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Dr. Antonia Rupel on her fantastic new Sanskrit reader. Check it out. Uh, Brill coming out any minute now. Uh, the link is in the podcast notes. Along with the reader, you can check out her flashcards her Sanskrit posters, and the fantastic new Sanskrit Studies podcast. Until next time, stay safe, stay sane, keep well, and keep studying Sanskrit. Take care.